Well, I don't know about how you navigate the adjustment to losing hours of sleep. My strategy always is about 6 o'clock, you know, set the clock ahead and start living on that time. And so I was doing that last night. Uh, we had found out our daughter-in-law had gone into labor at about 2, and it was, it was 9, 30, 10. I was finally like, are we going to get any news before? Because then I found out she gave birth to Margo Ann at about 10 o'clock is when we got the news. And, of course, then the phone's blowing up, and so uh, so much for getting to bed a little earlier. But uh, pretty exciting news. Yeah, we're excited. Well, um, I want you to think a little bit with me what it would be like to be involved in, in the following kind of church. Imagine being part of a church community where Paul's instructions in Ephesians 4.29 or 4.29 that, that no one should speak any unwholesome word, but only words that were good for edification according to the need of the moment, only words that gave grace to those who hear. What if we were a church that perfectly lived that out? A church where every word spoken in any interaction was full of grace. And truth, and maybe there, you know, there's sometimes hard truths that have to be shared, but it'd be with love and kindness and, and only about building up. A church where there were not unkind or angry or gossip or slanderous words spoken, but rather every word kind and gentle and loving. A, a church where there were no dishonest words or deceptive words. A church where no words were used to manipulate or manage uh, impression management. Um, a church where every word was full of wisdom and civility and respect. A church where words were forgiving and humble and welcoming. You get the picture. What would it be like to be part of that kind of church? It'd sort of be like Caleb Radio, right? I mean, positive, encouraging. That would be the experience. But it would be so much more than that. And I'm not saying there couldn't be laughter. I'm not saying there couldn't be discussions about the game last night and that kind of thing. But, but I'm just saying, what would it be like to be part of a church community where every word honored God? Where every word built up and none tore down? What would it be like to be a part of that church? That would be a powerful, transformational kind of church, right? That would be a church where we would really be able to live out the one and others of Scripture, to bear with one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to do those kind of things. It'd be the kind of church where, where we'd be able to bring our brokenness, our sin, our messes into that community and find help and hope and healing and restoration and freedom. I think it'd be the kind of church where the fellowship would run so deeply that we would shine brightly to the world around us, and it would be an attractive thing for those who do not yet know Jesus. They would know we are his disciples by our love. It would be a church where you would say they have a faith that actually works. The reality is we will never experience that kind of church in this life, right? I mean, that is only, we will only perfectly have that kind of fellowship in heaven. It's something we aspire to. It's something we long for. In this world, we continue to struggle with sins, including sins of the tongue. And yet, even though we will not perfectly experience that until we're in heaven, it still is what Jesus would desire for us. It is still the thing that we should work towards. We ought to be moving towards that kind of church. Today, we're looking at James 3, 1 through 12, where, where James is going to address the, the tongue. Last week, we looked at the end of chapter 2, and, and James taught that if we have genuine faith, it should be expressed 
in our works. It should be manifested by our works. And I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but your words actually are works that you do. If we're going to be a church and if we're going to be individuals who have a faith that works, we must pay attention to the tongue. James already addressed this. Uh, it's an important issue to him. In 119, he told us, be quick to hear, right? Slow to speak. In 126, he'd said that if a person is not able to bridle his tongue, that person's religion is worthless. And so this is a big deal to James, and he's, he's going to take a deep dive in, in looking at the tongue here in James 3, 1 through 12. We need to pay attention so that we can tame this thing called the tongue. He starts off, he addresses teachers, but as you come to verse 2, he transitions and, he, and he, he addresses all of us. Now, some people think that the flow of all of this is only addressing teachers, but, but I believe and agree with those that believe it. In verse 2, he begins to broaden it out. So he's still talking about teachers, but he's talking about all of us as well. But he starts off with this address to teachers, this warning to teachers. He says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. He says we. He's talking about himself here, right? And he warns that not many ought to become teachers. And you kind of wonder about this, right? Because teachers are a good gift to the church. Teachers are used in, in important ways in the church, it's likely that James is addressing those who are seeking this position out of impure motives. There was a kind of status and prestige in that role in the church. And James is writing to people coming out of the Jewish faith. And so uh, like the rabbis held a sense of prestige and, and honor in, in the Jewish faith, so too teachers in the early church. And so probably there were those who were seeking this position for some kind of personal gain. And so he gives this warning, let not many of you become teachers. Because you need to understand as teachers you are actually accountable to God. He says they will incur a stricter judgment. He likely means judgment at the end of times where, we, where our works are judged. And so teachers, what they say holds great importance for good or for evil, and, and they will be held accountable for it. And so certainly applies to my role this morning. But, but I think that James would not have us only apply it to those who stand up front on Sunday morning, but he would say, for any who are in a position to use their words to teach others in the church, we have this responsibility. We are accountable for the things that we, we say. There, there will be a stricter judgment. And so, and so it should be a sobering thing for, for teachers to be careful how they teach, to teach only what God desires. And so he gives that warning but as we come to chapter or verse 2, then he broadens it out and he begins to talk about the power of the tongue. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. So he's looking back. He is talking about teachers. But, but when he says we all, he's applying this to all of us. And he, he states a general principle that we all get. We all stumble. We all sin. And he says, and we do so in many ways. And we all go, how well do we know the truth of that reality? For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. He's used this word perfect a number of times in, in James. Back in 1.4, he, he talked about let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In James 1.4, and in our passage, he's, he's not talking about perfection. He's talking about maturity. He's talking about maturity. He's talking, his point is if, if you can control what you say, you're expressing maturity. You're expressing Christ-like virtues. 
In fact, he says, if you can control what you say, you can control your, your whole body as well. The tongue may be small, but it's powerful. And he goes on to illustrate the truth that that small things can be powerful. He says in verse 3, Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. And and there's a connection here. Something in the horse's mouth controls the horse's body. You put that bit in their mouth and and allows you to control their entire body. Or look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they're directed, still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. In James's day, the Romans built some of the biggest ships. They wouldn't be big in our day, but they were big for their day, maybe 100 feet long, 45 feet wide. These would have been great ships. And, and though they were great and though they were driven by strong winds, he says, they were still controlled by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Something small controls something large. Verse 5, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. It's probably not talking about boasting in a sinful sense here, but, but that it can be used to great effect. The tongue can, can be used to great effect for good or for evil. Either way, there is power in the small part of the body. Small things can be powerful. As you come to the second part of verse 5, though, he begins to not just talk about the power of small things, but he begins to describe the destructive potential, the destructive power of the tongue. He says, see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. You know, every fall we read the news, we hear the news about western states and fires, right? I mean, it's just, it's all the time, uh, it seems like. I, I was reading this week about one that started in July 2018. There was a rancher in Northern California out trying to drive a metal stake on his property, and when he did that, a spark flew off the stake and uh, lit the brush around, and it quickly got out of control, and, and that became known as the ranch fire, and it joined with some other fires. It ultimately became one of the largest forest fires in California state history. Burned over 496,000 acres, 280 structures destroyed, one firefighter killed, three injured. Small things can be very destructive. And the tongue, James says, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and it is set on fire by hell. Now, that's a pretty complicated verse. There's a lot going on there, um, but I think we don't, it's not hard to, to get the point, right? The big point this tongue, this little thing can be very destructive. It says it's a fire, it has this capacity for destruction. It's the very world of iniquity. It's as though the, the wickedness of the world is found in the tongue. He says it's set among our members as that which defiles the entire body which is what Jesus taught, right? In Matthew 5, he said, but the things that proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things that defile the man. And so there's a connection between the tongue and the heart, right? And it's a heart issue, ultimately, what comes out of the tongue. 
James adds that the tongue sets on fire the course of life. It's, it, it affects our entire existence. And then he says the tongue is set on fire by hell. And I think he's using that as a hell as a personification of our enemy. The, the tongue is set on fire by the enemy. Behind the destructive potential of the tongue is the enemy of our soul. Now, I don't think James is saying we can blame every sin of our tongue on the enemy. We have great capacity left to ourselves to sin with our speech. But he is saying the enemy can be involved. And that should sober us, the truth that the enemy does actually want to use our tongue to cause damage. And so we, we simply must not take it lightly when we say a hurtful word, when we lie, when we sin in any way with our tongue, because behind it, there may be a scheme of the enemy who is always seeking to kill and to steal and destroy. Behind it may be the scheme of the enemy seeking to keep us from being the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be. Verse 7, he goes on and he says, For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. And James obviously is speaking in hyperbole here, right? Not every animal has been tamed, but he's making the point that God gave this command at creation to subdue and rule over the earth. And his point is we have done that. We, are, we, are, we have ruled over and, and tamed the beasts. And yet, verse 8, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and is full of deadly poison. This word restless, it's a word he translated unstable back in 1.8 where he was talking about double-mindedness. And, and the idea seems to be that the tongue is this, this unstable thing. It's ready to break out with evil at any point. It is full of deadly poison. It is a deadly force. And we've all experienced that, right? We have all experienced the reality that there's deadly poison in the tongue. We have maybe been the cause of it. We have spoken in that way, or you've been the recipient of that kind of speech. I was thinking this week about uh, well, so Drew, who just had a little girl um, last night, I remember when he was growing up, just getting so angry at him up through about middle school. And I know that there was deadly poison in some of my words to him. I can't remember the specific words, but I can remember my impatience. I can remember my anger, and I can remember speaking out of that and, and it being destructive. And we have a great relationship now, but there were things that I wish I would never would have said with my tongue and tone in terms of how I said it. The tongue is a deadly poison. One last thought on this verse, and I think it's, it's where James gives us some hope. That the phrase where he says, but no one can tame the tongue, it literally means no one among men. And it very well may be that James is saying, our hope is not among men. It's not in me. It's not in you. But we're not looking among men for, for hope and help. We're, we have Jesus. We have one that we can look to. God is available to help. As you come to the final four verses here, James focuses on this, this concern he's been addressing throughout the letter, James, so far, this, this idea of double-mindedness, something that ought not be. He says in verse 9, With it we bless our Father, our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of 
of God. We bless with our tongue. We speak words to God. We've done that this morning, right? We've used our tongues for the highest and best. We've praised God. And yet he says, with the same tongue, we can enter into our weeks. We can go to our friends. We can go to our families. We can go to our work environments. We can go to social media because the tongue is not only about what's spoken, it's communication, right? And we can go into those places and and we were blessing now, but you go to those places and, and you curse men who have been made in the likeness of men. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be that way. It's unthinkable. It's wrong. It's double-mindedness. It's a reflection of immaturity. It's a reflection that we may be allowing the enemy to actually use our tongue to create destruction, to do damage, to speak poison. It reveals that something's not right in our hearts. James then gives several examples to illustrate how unthinkable this reality would be. He says, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. And of course, the rhetorical answer is no, it, it doesn't work that way. How unthinkable it would be that both blessing and cursing come from our mouths. If that's happening, it's double-mindedness, it's immaturity, and it needs to change. James wants us to understand that the tongue, though it's small, is powerful, and we know it, we've experienced it, we've used it in that way, and that small thing can be so destructive. It's a destructive force. At the start of today, I invite us to imagine a church where we only used our tongues to bless that would be an amazing church. That would be a powerful church. And I believe God wants us little by little to grow to be that kind of church more and more, as imperfect as it will be in this life. And if that's going to be increasingly true of us as a church, the only way that's going to happen is if each of us individually are growing in this area, right? I mean, how do we become that kind of church if I don't own my part of how I speak? We need to learn to control our tongues. And so I want to talk for a little bit about some practical ways to grow in controlling our tongues. And I think there's a lot of things that you could do. I want to give you four suggestions. Maybe you want to do one or two of these this week. And I say this week. Sometimes we can, uh, we can hear truth and be encouraged to apply some things. And it be- can become overwhelming to think about the rest of my life. What about you just focus on it this week? And at the end of the week, if you want to continue to, to work on it, great. But, but I'm just saying, what about working on it this week and see what God might do? Decide to give God control of your tongue. James 12.1, you know, we're encouraged to present our bodies, a living sacrifice to God, the members of our body. In light of what Jesus has done for us, it makes sense, Paul says, to present our bodies to him. And so I'm saying, focus on the tongue. Actually, every day as you get up this morning, commit your tongue to God, to his use, to be used by him. Ask him to fill it with his life. One way to do it, I I wrote a little prayer in your bulletin that you could pray every morning as you rise up and as you're committing your day to the Lord. You could pray, Lord, today I give you control of my tongue. 
I ask for your empowering grace to guide all that I say. Help me to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Help me to see when I'm about to speak without thinking and to check my heart. Father, by your Spirit, fill my heart with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And may all that I say today only be a reflection of the fruit of your Spirit. You commit the use of your tongue to God. At the end of the day, there's another thing you could do. You could daily reflect on your words. As you're getting ready for bed, as you're brushing your teeth, um, reflect on your words that day. Do a little inventory. Think about your interactions. Maybe you look and think, there, that, I, I, was, that, I blessed there. That was encouraged. And I'd say, thank God for that. Thank him that he enabled you to do that. Give thanks. But when you see places that you stumbled, places where you did not control your tongue, then my encouragement would, would just be to be honest and to confess it. Just confess it. Don't make excuses. Sometimes we make excuses. Well, I was just tired. Or that's just the way I am. Or I wouldn't have said it if they wouldn't have whatever, right? And, and, and we don't own our own deal. And I think Jesus is saying it doesn't matter how other people act. We are responsible for the use of our tongue. And so you just confess it. And, and there's something about that. I mean, Jesus has already forgiven us if we've trusted him. But there's something about when we come to him in honesty and humility and confess our sin, it opens up our lives to the transforming work of God. He can transform our tongues through that process. Third, you can invite feedback. Sometimes the, the kind of the fruit of our words, how we use speech, can be a bit of a blind spot to us we may not really know the impact of our words the tone and, and the way we speak and so to invite feedback can be helpful you could ask a friend you could ask a spouse you could ask a child you could ask a parent what the quality of your words are like and and are there hurtful things are there hurtful ways are there tones that are hurtful and uh, you receive their feedback that can be very helpful just you know seeing the reality of things and if they point out hurt, it may be that they've been hurt, then again, you, you ask for forgiveness. You, you, you walk that process. Or maybe they point out, I've observed this interaction, and you may have someone that you need to go to, to to talk to them and ask for forgiveness about how you interacted. But again, when we do that, when we humble ourselves in that way, it opens ourselves up to, to the work of God to change our lives. Final thought that you could practice, you could practice the discipline of silence. A, a discipline is something that we practice to sort of open ourselves up to the activity of God. And there's all sorts of spiritual disciplines in the Christian life, daily devotions, prayer, these kinds of things. And so discipline of silence is one of these kinds of disciplines that we can practice. Donald Whitney defines this discipline this way. The discipline of silence is the voluntary and temporary abstention from speaking so that certain spiritual goals might be sought certain spiritual goals. And so there could be a lot of different spiritual goals for practicing silence. And there's different ways to practice this discipline. A lot of times it's practiced by getting away, by getting away from noise and people and getting into the wilderness, places where you experience solitude. So you can quiet your heart and listen to God, to listen to his voice. And that's a way to practice the discipline of silence. But what I'm suggesting is instead of practicing this by getting away, and that could be very helpful for your tongue too, I'm saying practice it as you enter into your world, as you enter into your family, as you enter into work, as you enter into your, your life group. Practice the discipline of silence there. 
And the idea is that you don't practice per, you know, absolute silence, but you only speak when it's necessary. You only speak when it would be unkind not to speak. But in your interactions, you're, you're choosing to listen more and speak less. You're quick to hear, slow to speak. You check yourself from the tendency to want to talk every time you can in these different interactions. And only speak when it would be unkind to not speak. And, and so in that listening, that quietness, that silence, you're choosing to listen to God. God, what are you doing? What are you saying? Help me understand what is going on here. You could choose a day to do that. You could choose a week where you do that. The goal on this discipline is not to not speak. It's to not be silent. The goal is to gain control over your tongue because you're consciously checking yourself and, and choosing not to speak every time you can. What happens when we practice this discipline, we realize how often we speak when we don't actually have to. We realize how often we use words to control situations. We use our words to control people, outcomes, situations. We use words to control what they think about us. And, and in the discipline of silence, you have to let go of all that and kind of trust God with that. The goal is, to help, is that it would help you gain control of your tongue. In general, in any of these kind of suggestions, at the heart of it is a heart issue, right? I mean, our, what we communicate comes out of the heart. That's what Jesus told us. And so in any of these things, we are throwing ourselves on the grace of God. It, it cannot be a thing where you just determine, I'm only going to speak kind things if kindness is not in your heart. I'm only going to speak patient things if patience isn't in your heart. And so behind all of these suggestions is calling out to God, oh God, do a work in my heart, that there would be dwelling in my heart good that would come out in my tongue. And so this is not a self-improvement project, right? This is not about just trying harder and working harder. It's about calling out to the grace of God to change us at heart level so that our tongues will be used for good. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. He's a mature man, able to bridle the whole body as well. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 18.21. Some of you know it. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Life is in the power of your tongue. May we be a church that speaks life, blessing through our speech. But death dwells there as well. May we be a church that is increasingly putting away speech that is full of poison that creates death. May we bless and not curse. Let's pray. Father, each one of us, we come here this morning and we acknowledge that we've got room for growth here. God, each one of us can remember interactions, words, tone that, that didn't honor you. Or we missed opportunities to speak blessings when we should have. God, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would do a work in our heart. That that what dwells there would be the fruit of your spirit. And that we'd speak out of that. That we would be people that, that really we don't stumble in how we speak. You would give us mastery. You would give us control. That we would learn to bless and not curse. God, do this work in us individually, do this work in us corporately as a church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.